Good morning. We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cast. I was stolen away from the Delaware River, said Peter, with my brother Levin when I was about six years old. My father's name was Levin, and my mother's name was Sydney. And we had two sisters, one named Merica and the other Charity, though my brother always said that Merica was our cousin. We used to talk a heap about our mother, but 19 years ago, my brother died in Alabama, and now I've bought my liberty and come back to hunt for my relations. Peter felt a subtle change come over the clerk. Still had been courteous at first, but now, as Peter told his story, still seemed to become intensely interested. That's Towson University Associate Professor of History Andrew K. Deemer reading from his new book. It's a biography of that clerk in the scene we just heard described. But more than one man's story, it traces the fight for rights for black people throughout the 19th century. It's titled Vigilance, the Life of William Still, Father of the Underground Railroad. Welcome to the show, Professor Deemer. Thanks for having me. You began the book with the moment William Still always said was the most pivotal in his life, connecting with a brother he'd heard about but never met. It was August 1850. Set the scene for us. We could set the scene from two directions. So one is his brother who's arrived in this strange city, not sure of what to expect, not sure that he's even got a chance of finding the people he's looking for. This strange Um, city is Philadelphia. The strange city being Philadelphia. From the other standpoint, we can set the scene with William Still, who at this point has become a clerk in the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society. As a clerk, he's got all sorts of responsibilities, but increasingly his most important responsibility is helping fugitive slaves who pass through Philadelphia, helping them get to Philadelphia, helping keep them safe when they're in Philadelphia, and then helping them move on to safer places. usually to New England, sometimes all the way to Canada. So his office at the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society was a logical place for someone like Peter searching for lost family to come, a black person who had been enslaved. That's correct. So um, it is the place where fugitive slave would come, but it's also a place that keeps records, so still had begun carefully keeping track of fugitive slaves who passed through his office. This was, of course, a dangerous business because if these records fell into the wrong hands, they could have been used against fugitive slaves, um, but still felt it was important to to begin to keep track of this, um, especially after this momentous encounter with his brother. These days, if you say Underground Railroad, most people, especially people in Maryland, think of Harriet Tubman. You call William Still the father of the Underground Railroad. Tell us more about what he did. Sure, and I want to be a little cautious here because when I call him father of the Underground Railroad, I want to recognize that he's not a father in the sense that he creates the Underground Railroad. He is instead a father in the sense that he nurtures it, that he grows it, uh, he's responsible for it. So um, I think that's an important distinction to make. he is uh, he is a, a co-worker with Harriet Tubman, so he is a, a person who aids her in her work, um, but he has a much broader responsibility, I would say. He is not actively himself traveling into slave states in order to rescue fugitive slaves. He is instead um, building this, this network that supports people who do this work. He is... Um, a facilitator, we could call him, of this broader effort to aid fugitive slaves. 
William Still, you quote him, saying that meeting his brother was a primary reason he started keeping records on the fugitives he encountered. And on page 69, you write, as you just mentioned, that it was risky to keep records. You don't explain then exactly why. Why was it so risky? So the, the probably the biggest reason why it had become risky at that point was because in 1850, the uh, the federal government passed a new, stronger fugitive slave law. So prior to this, there had been fugitive slave laws on the book that required states that had outlawed slavery to, to help in the return of fugitive slaves. But they were largely toothless by the late 1840s because states like Pennsylvania had passed laws that actually in, in sort of inhibited the recovery of fugitive slaves, protected free black people, um, made it sort of risky for slave catchers to come into Pennsylvania. This new law in 1850 actually creates um, a federal bureaucracy of slave commissioners who are empowered to recover fugitive slaves. It creates strict uh, penalties for those who don't aid them in this work and for those who actually actively oppose the recovery of fugitive slaves, there are strict penalties as well. Um, So by the 1850s, even you know even free states ostensibly free states like pennsylvania are not safe for fugitive slaves and keeping records apparently became even more risky about a decade later on the eve of the civil war after john brown's raid on the federal arsenal at harpers ferry west virginia because john brown had visited philadelphia to build up support for his plan that's correct, and and he was particularly interested in cultivating William Still. So, uh, what makes Still particularly vulnerable at that moment was that one of Brown's lieutenants had been found with Still's contact information on him when he was captured at Harper's Ferry. So, Still is directly implicated, though it doesn't seem that Still actually it, it, he did meet with with Brown. Um, he seemingly offered some advice, but it seems that he was skeptical of the. Um, the potential of that, um, though he was always sympathetic to Brown's goals, of course. That kind of skepticism, that caution, was typical of William Still. I think that's right. You know, he is um, elsewhere. I've described, or I've sort of played up this idea that he is a clerk. He goes about his business in a very business-like way. He runs the Underground Railroad as a business. He strives for efficiency. Um, he tries to eliminate waste. He is careful to make sure that as he dispenses money to fugitive slaves, they're not uh, trying to defraud him because there are some who are looking for for money despite not truly being fugitive slaves. Um, so he is uh, he is this very sort of cautious, meticulous person. As Towson University history professor Andrew Deemer on the record on WYPR, I'm Sheila Cast. We're discussing his biography of William Still, the black Philadelphian who expedited the Underground Railroad. It's called Vigilance. I'm going to leap over a lot of Still's life here. His leaving the employ of the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society, starting his own business, becoming quite wealthy. I'm going to vault over the Civil War and emancipation to the book that William Still wrote in 1872. You say that book is one of the great achievements of Still's life. It is. It's, um, I think it is in keeping with his larger commitment in a number of ways. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, in the book, 
it is a book titled The Underground Railroad, and we might imagine that it is a book, you know, mostly about his work, but it's not. It really isn't about his work. It's about the hundreds of fugitive slaves who he helps over this more than a decade at the uh, Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society. But the book itself really strives to celebrate fugitive slaves themselves, strives to make it clear that they themselves, the men, women, and children who fled slavery, were the real story. Um, as much as the people who helped them along the way, including still, are important, he really wants to make sure that he puts them at the center of the story. And and um, for this reason, it, it, I think, has really changed how historians think about the Underground Railroad. But it's also been a, a vital resource in helping people understand slavery. So a, a significant portion of the book talks about the lives of the people who flee slavery um, and gives us insight into these hundreds of people who, for any number of reasons, are able to flee slavery and and find success finding their way to still in Philadelphia. Um, so it's important, I think, in 1870 that he's publishing this because already, or in the 1870s when he's publishing this and when this, these books are being sold, because already there's um, a sort of effort on the part of some of the white participants in the Underground Railroad to tell the story of the Underground Railroad in a way that celebrates their contributions, that highlights the bravery and the generosity of white um, Underground Railroad agents and station agent, station masters, etc., um, while leaving fugitives as sort of the, the the beneficiaries of this rather than as active participants. Still had very little formal schooling. He had taught himself a lot. Where did he seek help writing this huge book? So he has, um, over the course of his work on the Underground Railroad, he developed all sorts of connections. So, um, you know, I talked about this earlier that he is a, he's building this vast network. Um, it involves black and white participants in the Underground Railroad, but some of his white allies um, are sort of the intellectual elite of Philadelphia. And so he, he's able to lean on them. Um, some of these men who had been, uh, you know, sort of supporters of the Underground Railroad are now supporters in writing and editing this book, though, though it's clear that he wrote it himself, even though he has help editing it. And how did he sell this tome? So here again is, uh, I think, this shows still recognizing that he had to kind of step outside of the box in order to make this happen, that he couldn't rely on the regular channels of selling his book. Um, he creates another network of agents to sell his book, and he has them travel throughout the country and um, control little different territories and um, sort of directly sell this book to people who are interested in. And many of these agents, most of these agents are African-Americans who are, um, you know, this, this sort of vast, interesting network of booksellers that still creates. And I want to make sure I understand. They're going door to door. They're not, they're not going to bookstores. They're That's going correct. door to door yes. like encyclopedias used to be sold. That's right. That's right. So they're, they're sort of selling directly. And they get, of course, they get, they get a, a, a percentage of that. Probably the most famous fugitive in Still's book was Henry Box Brown, who had himself nailed into a wooden packing crate and shipped as cargo by train from Richmond, 
Virginia to Philadelphia. What was Still's role in that escape? So this was fairly early in Still's work at the Anti-Slavery Society in 1849. Um, so he was not yet sort of the, the central figure, but he was he was in the office and it was clear that he was already working with fugitive slaves. And so it doesn't seem that Still was involved necessarily in arranging this shipment. So um, there are others who seem to, to have taken the lead in coordinating with Brown's ally in Richmond and making sure that whatever day lined up, but still is there. So we know that still is there when the box is opened up. There are images at the time made of this moment and still is depicted in them. After Brown comes out of the box, he stays with the still family for a couple of days as well. Another entry about Romulus Hall, who fled enslavement in Charles County, Maryland, seems to have meant a lot to Still. Tell us briefly what happened. Well, Still was was very proud of the fact that so few of the people for whom he was responsible uh, passed away, so, that, so that, that he had a great record of successfully, in other words, helping people flee from slavery. Um, and Hall is, is one of the, the rare exceptions um, but he he paints this picture of Hall on his deathbed, talking about how he doesn't regret anything that he was, um, he would never have made a different choice that that running away from slavery was the right thing for him to do, and I think this reinforced a lot for Still that that these men and women and children who were fleeing slavery were willing to risk their lives and indeed were willing to give up their lives in efforts to find freedom. And Hall basically died of frostbite. He had gotten lost and wandered a long time escaping Maryland. That's correct. So many of the fugitives who make it to Still um, had to walk. So so he, he has any number of ways that fugitives make it to Philadelphia. But I think probably the the most common is that people just set out on foot and find their way to Philadelphia. It's It's as simple as that. We need to take a brief pause in our conversation with Andrew Deemer about his book, Vigilance, The Life of William Still, Father of the Underground Railroad. When we're back, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, The Push for Respectability. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. For crucial decades before the Civil War, William Still was the connector who helped fugitive slaves find their way to freedom. Andrew Deemer, Associate Professor of History at Towson University, tells the story of that work and what followed in his new book, Vigilance, The Life of William Still, Father of the Underground Railroad. When Still wrote his massive history of the Underground Railroad, one of its lines you quote is this, it scarcely needs to be said that, as a general rule, the passengers of the Underground Railroad were physically and intellectually above the average order of slaves, close quote. This fascinated me, Professor Deemer, because you described many moments when Still's critics, including black critics, complained that he was elitist. Was he? 
not by any definition I think that we would recognize today. I think one of the things that he's trying to do in the book is to say that there's an enormous number of remarkable elite people that he's talking about that that if if we're to think about an elite we need to think about this elite of character of determination of accomplishment not simply those who are able to uh, gain the trappings of respectability that might mark them in polite society as a member of the elite um, though still is interested in that sort of thing too so i think he is living at a time where he understands that african americans um, are judged by white people by the actions of what still deems to be unrepresentative members and that the worst members of his community are seen to be representative of that community and he's deeply invested in making sure that in his life he sets a good example that he is able to demonstrate the value of the black race but i think you know to come back to your question about the book you know his critics are going to jump on the fact that by the 1870s he's wealthy he sends his children off to college he hosts literary events for the sort of black literary elite but in the book he wants to make it clear that that's not the only elite that he's talking about he's talking about something much deeper and in his eyes more significant when he talks about the black elite and how would you summarize that elite i think um committed to improving themselves and the broader community that is always still's definition of the elite and that's always what he strives for he is never someone who's simply looking to improve his own lot in life he is always looking to to sort of connect his own personal improvement with the improvement of the black community around him it was only as he neared publishing his huge book about the underground railroad that still revealed publicly that his mother charity still had been a fugitive slave briefly tell us about that so both of Still's parents had been enslaved on the Eastern Shore in Maryland, and his father, Levin, was able to purchase his own freedom. After years of saving and negotiating with his master, he was able to purchase his freedom. William Still's mother, uh, Sidney, at that time, later to become Charity, was unable to do so. And so they decided that she would flee slavery and join him in in New Jersey, which is where they were going to live at the time. When she first ran away, she brought with her her four young children. But very quickly, she and the children were recaptured. So that left her in a situation where when she ran a second time, she made this really heartbreaking decision to run away with just the two younger children, the two daughters who were basically infants at that time leaving behind the two older children, the boys, Peter and Levin. Um, at that point, she felt like, you know, running away a second time, they were going to be looking for her even more intently than they had the last time in that she just couldn't afford to try it with all four children. Um, so that time she runs away. And when, when she meets up with her husband in New Jersey, they, they move to a more remote part of New Jersey and basically take on new names. They change their name from Steel to Still. Uh, Sydney changes her name to Charity. They make connections with the Black community there. They find uh, ways to hide out, but 
but she's essentially, you know, legally still enslaved for um, the rest of her life by by the laws of Maryland. This is On the Record. I'm Sheila Cass speaking with Towson University history professor Andrew Deemer about his biography of William Still, famous for his work in the Underground Railroad. The book is called Vigilance. Charity Still lived into her 80s long enough to be reunited with her son, Peter. Yeah, certainly this is something that I think she had lost all hope of by that point. It's clear that they they continue to remember these boys who had been left behind, that I'm sure that she held out some hope, as as I could imagine all parents would in, in such circumstance. But um, by the time she is reunited, this is not something that she she believed was possible. But it, it was, you know, and, and I think this ultimately speaks to the importance of Still's network. We think of this as sort of a, a miraculous reunion of these this family, um, but it's made possible by the diligent work that Still and others have done in recreating this network. So it's it's almost sort of logical that if Peter came looking in Philadelphia, that he would come to Still's office. Peter went to retrieve his family, still enslaved in Alabama. He thought at first to try to buy their freedom as he had purchased his own. But William Still's associates said, no, you shouldn't You shouldn't uh, validate slavery like that. You should help them escape. And that went really badly. Yeah, there, there are a few things about this story that I think are notable. One is that it shows some of the disagreements within the abolitionist community, that, that there were those who we could call them sort of more theoretical in their approach to abolitionism that made the argument that you mentioned that in in purchasing someone's freedom you are acknowledging that people can be owned Um, and then of course that money that you've used to purchase someone goes into the pockets of a slaveholder who can then turn around and purchase other slaves there are others like still who are more practical minded Um, i've called them in other places practical abolitionists who are willing to do whatever it takes whatever the theoretical implications of that action then when it comes to the actual mission that goes into Alabama and seeks to recover them, it's risky in all sorts of ways. It it risks, um, of course, the life of the person who is traveling into the South to do this. It risks upsetting other kinds of networks. So there were all sorts of reasons not to undergo efforts like this, but there were certainly those who were willing to take those risks. Eventually, Peter does raise the money to to buy freedom of his family. And William Still lived into the 20th century. He died of kidney disease in 1902 at age 80. You researched this book about William Still and freedom seekers for years. What do you hope readers take from it? If there's a single thing to take from this, it is the remarkable people who come into Still's orbit. I mean, you know, I've talked about this earlier, that he is this networker who builds this network of connections. Um, What that means is that he just comes into contact with some of the most remarkable people of this era. We've we've mentioned a few of them, Henry Box Brown, um, John Brown, uh, Harriet Tubman. You know, Still is the glue who ties all these people together, but he also gives us an opportunity to to learn about all of these remarkable people. 
um, and the network and the community that holds them all together. And I think that's the second thing I, I hope that readers take out of this book is that Still's work is really rooted in this remarkable Black community in Philadelphia, but then beyond that, a sort of interracial, anti-slavery, abolitionist community as well. Thanks for telling us about it. Well, thank you very much for having me. Andrew Diemer, Associate Professor of History at Towson University, covers a broad sweep of the 19th century fight for racial equity in his new book, Vigilance, The Life of William Still, Father of the Underground Railroad. He'll speak about it Thursday at 7 p.m. at the Central Branch of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, part of its Writers Live series. The event will also be live-streamed. We've got the link to more information at the On the Record page at wypr.org. I'm Sheila Cast. Glad you're with us on the record. Join us again tomorrow. <laughs>